0: Hi, I'm Tom Bryant and welcome to Outdoors in Mind. From Blue Peters to Strictly, right through to being the host of the BBC's flagship daytime show Morning Live, Gethin Jones has chalked up more than 20 years on our screens. I caught up with him in Salford just a few hours after coming off air for what was a bracing walk around the quays before settling in for a fascinating chat, and one which really stayed with me actually as he opened up about stuff for the first time, including depression, therapy and the breakdown of his high-profile engagement to singer Catherine Jenkins more than a decade ago. Hats off to him, he was nothing if not totally honest, with the view that talking about mental health can only empower others to do the same. As ever, we are working with the mental health charity Mind on this series, so just to pre-warn, our conversation covers topics including suicide, depression, panic attacks, exercise, coping with fame and social media, as well as supporting others with their mental health. Just to say also, we've teamed up with Go Outdoors for this podcast, you'll hear more about their brilliant Hats On For Mind campaign from me later on. So listen with care. And if you need some support, Mind is always available on mind.org.uk. Hope you enjoy. Gethin, welcome to Outdoors and Mind. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm good today. Thank you. Good. We, I saw you earlier. We did some lovely photos outside. It was absolutely freezing. You showed me Salford Keys, which you said that you actually like swimming in there, which I couldn't quite believe. Yeah. A lot of people said
1: that, actually. I thought we were very natural doing the photo shoot, weren't we? We had a thing going on, pretending that there was no camera that you're doing that thing where you're chatting, pretending there was camera, but we know the camera's there. Yeah, no, it was quite, that was actually random, wasn't it? The, the meeting spot, but uh, it's a place that um, I've got to know really well. Um, I do a lot of triathlons, so we do quite a bit of training there. So, Sulphur Keys, bit of a swim, and then cycle back and forth, maybe a bit of a run around this sort of media city area. And you get your all three disciplines in, but it can get a bit chilly this time of year.
0: I'm quite impressed because you're you're 45, I'm 44. I think you're much more fit and energetic than I am. No, you're, you're a, a runner, you're a, aren't you? I am, but I'm on a bit of a hiatus at the moment. Oh, are you? Yeah. Or are you on
1: a bit of a break? Yeah, a little break. I'm like enjoying, pre-season.
0: <laughs> I'm, enjoying, I'm, jo- I'm enjoying all this spare time. So yeah. I hear about your 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 routine. It sounds exhausting. No, I, I think it's be, it's funny. It's um, I think because I've not really
1: had a routine in my job ever really you know since i started i started on telly on my 24th birthday with alex jones from the one show oh yes um which is very strange and then about 20 years on we were together for um the queen's uh, the queen's funeral and and that week um you know sort of 20 years on it was really weird the little journeys we'd be on with work but anyway in that time I've never really had a routine, so I think exercise or getting up to go to the gym or getting up for a run or whatever it may be was um, was something I really needed, you know, probably for mental health, actually, to sort of get up, start the day in a positive light and actually be productive in the day. So it's always been part of my life and it's, I, I make time for it. It's really important to me. So, yeah,
0: I, I do train quite hard, but, um, yeah, it's uh, something I like doing for sure. <laughs> And it offsets the the, the the day job, you know, the stress of the day job, yeah. and which is obviously morning live. And we're here in sort of Media City, um, and you've you come off air a few hours ago ago now. How how did the show go? Uh, I can't remember. What happened this morning? Uh, <laughs> so like you come off going, what happened there? Um, we're really blessed, actually,
1: because we're, we're just outside of Media City. We film it in Central Manchester, uh, which is lovely. And we moved up here about eighteen months ago. We have got a great team. It's a pleasure to go to work. Sarah Cox was on the show this morning, so you're always a little bit wondering, you're always a bit um, in doubt what's going to happen in a good way. <laughs> um, but no, it was good. That live buzz is quite something, and uh, there is a lot of pressure with it. If I said that to my parents, who've been teachers all their lives, or my sister, who worked in a COVID ward you know, during the hardest times, I think, uh, in her lifetime as a medic... Uh, if I'd phoned up at half ten and said, oh, that was a tough show today, there would be zero response on my WhatsApp group, you know. So I, I appreciate what I do. I'm grateful for what I do. But it does come with that element of responsibility and stress because live TV is this really weird
0: bubble uh, that we live in. You, you mentioned your your mum and dad um, and the fact that they were, te- were teachers. Obviously, what I love about you is there's no show business in your blood you know you, come from, yeah. you thank, thank you <laughs> you know you come from normal stock as it were for sure um, but you're quite a musical family
1: yeah that's right so dad, dad was a head teacher um he used to teach us the piano my mum's a violin teacher hence why i played the violin the the whatsapp the family whatsapp groups really funny my sister got a dog a couple of years ago and i can literally i could be on the phone saying hey um so here i am at these awards i've just done this i've met the pope you know and nothing and then there'll be 40 pictures of the dog lying on my mum's sofa going I know where I am in this family tree um (laughs) but I suppose that's a sort of a really good thing but yeah musical family brought up my sister's a cellist well she played the cello I don't think she loved it as much as I like the violin but uh it's pretty cool now I was literally doing a gig um a couple of weeks ago a corporate event and uh the MD got on stage after me and um there was like a piano in the middle of the stage, and he made a joke and said, Geth, we should do a duet. So without thinking, I ran back onto the stage and just started playing some love songs on the piano. Oh, wow. And to his credit, he sat on the stool next to me and started talking about his journey within the company whilst I was going... Duh, 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 duh. And it's moments like that I appreciate the skill that I learned before because obviously it was the talking point of the evening and it's what people remember, and it sort of makes you a little bit different, doesn't it?
0: You weren't weren't minded to go into music full time. Because you did, um, you went to university, didn't you? Yeah. You did geography. Yeah, done good good research. Geography. Yeah, geography and
1: economics. Economics. Um, Yeah, that was 96 in Manchester. I think my mum would have liked me to have gone on and done stuff with the violin, but I think dad was very much like, what is the job? You know, it's if you don't really get to the very, very top... um, like my friend Nicola Benedetti did, and I was nowhere near in the same ballpark as her. you sort of become, you know, like a travelling um, musician or whatever. And I was like, nope, go to university, get a degree, which I feel I've done nothing with since. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's but funny. I learned more about myself at uni maybe than I did the academic side, and that was was crucial. But... You had no
0: aspirations at university to go move into TV. No. You, did, you, did, you did a lot of sport, though, didn't you? you went, yeah. You, I I, I read something that you did. You you played a lot of rugby. Yeah. And you had trials.
1: Yeah, there was there was a moment there where I thought, okay, you know, there's lots of people talking about it. Do I look to do this professionally? Um.
0: What what was your position?
1: off, stayed out of trouble. My <laughs> mate says there was one night in training on a Tuesday where he heard me shouting, "Not the face, not the face." And <laughs> And didn't think rugby was for me. I'm not sure that's true. Um, but yeah, it's tough during that time where professional rugby was just sort of starting. So no one really knew what it was. And was I good enough? I don't know. It, you know, retired at 24 uh, and went into TV. And I didn't really quit rugby for telly. It wasn't about, you know, appearance or anything like that. It was just time. TV was starting to take more time. And it was amazing. This is like, you know, born to carry the coal, not sit in front of the fire and watch it burn. And here I am on Welsh telly with Alex and another um, good friend of mine now, Sarah Algan, wearing double denim and a yellow T-shirt. And I was dreadful. I mean, I would cringe watching it back now. But I was like, what an opportunity. So I sort of made up my own course for presenting, like little things I could do to improve. So even now, if I leave a voice note, it's always a minute long just to keep my brain... Uh, in time you know how long's a minute how long's a minute for live TV or pick up uh, uh, an article I knew nothing about like hedge funds or something and then try and regurgitate it in a simple way so it's taken on information how do you present that in a in a way that you know your granddad might understand or you know a seven year old might might get as well so all that stuff probably helped bit random innit? it I got some yeah it's a bit odd. Con, and I'd make Connie Huck I'd make her talk about stuff on uh, day trips with Blue Peter i say talk about that banana for eight minutes and she would
0: was such like, a it was really entertaining as
1: well. I know it's bizarre isn't it so just I spent a lot of
0: time listening and watching and learning you mentioned um, Connie and Blue Peter I mean it must have been so difficult to get that job and of course you didn't get the job initially did you I didn't how do you know that <laughs> i
1: thought done my research you read that somewhere yeah <laughs> That was so weird. I think there was like 1,600 boys going for the same job over eight months, all these kind of different tests that you you get given. Um, and, yeah, I, went, I remember going into the studio one day and they said, oh, we just want you to decorate the the, the studio Christmas for Christmas. So you go in thinking, this is going to be the best decoration ever, <laughs> going over the top as you do. And then they called me upstairs and, like, Geth, we'd like to offer you the job as the 31st Blue Peter presenter. And it was uh, just phenomenal. Just uh, amazing. I didn't know what I was getting paid. I didn't care. I think I had fourteen days off in two years. Um, I still can't quite believe that that happened to me. To be honest, I, I'm very emotional when it comes to Blue Peter because it was way more than a job for me. Oh really? Yeah, it was. Um, it was uh, amazing. I used to get like two thousand letters letters a week. Um, it was just such a privilege to be on it at a time that was. I don't know. It was just, and, and people grow up with it now. You know, I'll meet kids, I guess, you know, they're, but they're 24, 25, and I used to watch you on Blue Peter. I'm like, oh my God, that's mad. Like, you are part of their upbringing. It was that big a deal. It was that, that's what they call it an in institution.
0: We talked to Helen for um, for this podcast, Helen Skelton.
1: Yeah. I just missed out on doing Blue Peter with her. This week, yeah. So oh, I, was I, I would have loved to have worked on, on BP with her.
0: I mean, it was so interesting talking to her, because obviously you do all the, all the light, fluffy stuff where you wear funny costumes. But then you do, <laughs> yeah, but then you do these sort of incredible sort of dispatches. You go all around the world, and you do these appeal films, and it's re- you, you see some really heart-wrenching stuff, yeah. really moving stuff. And obviously you're quite young at the time. Yes. And you're going to these situations. What are some of the more difficult scenarios that you were in on Blue Peter that maybe you found quite difficult to, to deal with, mentally perhaps? That's a
1: brilliant question. And you're right, you're young, and I was naive. I'd never worn makeup before. I'd never really seen, I'd done a bit of live telly on, on S4C, but not to that scale, sort of understood fame, people changing towards you. And then on top of that, you're taking on all kinds of different things, 31 different countries. Imagine the different cultures going on there, and you spend a lot of time in those places, two, five, six weeks in Japan, Bolivia, southern states, away from home, you know, just sort of living this dream but just such fast-paced. Then the achievements, for world records, um, two lifetime ambitions, you know, being attacked by an alligator in a Louisiana swamp, all of that going on. And then on top of that, obviously, you have these incredible stories. Like you say, we do the appeals. Um, I remember going to Malawi and taking two children from the UK with me to meet two children from Malawi at the same age, and to see how they would react to each other and what life was like for both of those and watching that go on. Um, I think, interestingly, at the time, we just focused on getting the job done well because it was such a brilliantly well old machine. It's only after that I realised the impact it might have had. I still have to this day on my desk at home, a Green Berry when I did the Commando Yomp, Troop 891. I think I was the first civilian to complete the course.
0: How many miles was that?
1: It's, it's, they call it the 30-mile yon, but it's actually 32,
0: right.
1: which sums up the mental side of it, right? And I went to practice it when I first went there, and I failed after six miles on the Irishman's Wall. So I went away, trained really hard. I went to the park every Saturday with my log, because obviously I couldn't keep a rifle and the weight on. And all of a sudden, these children who watched Blue Peter would meet me at the park, knowing I did it and sort of trot around with me and I'd, they'd be on their bikes and I'd run around the park for eight hours. So I'm like, this is incredible. And when I did the yomp, and I got over the line, there was a young girl called Millie who was seven at the time um, who I refused my Greenberry because I wasn't going to war and it was just a brilliant achievement and I had so much respect and still do to those, to all our armed forces. Like, just amazing. Um, God, so many stories, I'm going on a tangent, but... Um, I remember she knitted me a green berry. But what made me laugh was she made it to the size of my head, the scale on TV. So it's that big. It's got a little Blue Peter badge that she's embroidered. And I keep that as a sort of memory of how big a deal that show was and the profound effect it had on me as a person. It's weird. I do get really emotional talking about Blue Peter. I love it. I love it so much.
0: Three and a half years is a good run as well.
1: Yeah. And I promised myself when I'd had enough, I would leave and be brave enough to leave. Um, and that day came when I went straight upstairs and went, I want to pass the badge on. It was like, you know, sort of call of duty. It's like, right, I'm done. Pass it on to someone who wants it as much as I do.
0: Am I right in thinking you went on Strictly whilst
1: on Blue pizza? Yeah. So there was a bit of overlap Yeah, It overlapped, there. yeah. yeah they sort of, I was actually building a shelter in a Bolivian jungle. when I got a call on the sat phone saying, do you want to do Strictly? And I can't oh, really? be as hard as this. I was wrong.
0: So, obviously, on Blue Peter, you were quite well known. Then he did Strictly. And obviously, that was a whole new level of fame. How did you find that transition? Because obviously, you, you, were, you were young.
1: 26. Yeah, really strange. Met a really famous girl on the show that I started dating on top of it as well and understanding her world. It was a lot. And I don't think I dealt with it brilliantly. Um, why not? I don't know. I didn't understand it. Like I didn't understand fame and papers and paps and like why. You know. I think. Um, I think when the semi final when I got voted out, my girlfriend at the time, Catherine, was singing on ITV on X Factor with Ridian that night. I think between the two shows, it's like thirty million people watching. And, you know, you head home and you're having a cup of tea, no milk because you haven't been to the shop, a chocolate digestive. You haven't got curtains up and you, you're flat because you just haven't had time to do it. And you sat there going, this is really bizarre. And I think that the next few years after that I sort of really struggled because of understanding the other side of I just did Blue Peter because I loved it. I do live TV now because I love it. could really take a leave the fame. I, the fame... I find I try and channel in a positive way by opening doors for the charities that I'm involved with. That's huge, which is probably what drives me on. But the rest of fame is dangerous,
0: scary. I mean that really was a a real introduction to fame, wasn't it, Strictly? Wasn't it just, yeah. You know I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's not just the fact that
1: Yeah, you no, have and to... dating an international superstar and Strictly. and you know, I'm coming from Blue Peter on twenty seven grand a
0: year. During those times, um did it ever get quite even though people were clamouring after you um, and had all these people, all these eyes on you, were you quite lonely?
1: Um, No, not at that point. I think that sort of comes after. Um, It did for me anyway. And what I mean by that is I think people from the outside think your job's great, your job's glamorous, you do cool things. Um, They don't see the... The bits. This is not a sob story. It's just it is lonely. I'm not always busy. I sometimes do have a free weekend, Uh, and you are on your own. You know, I've been sort of single uh, um, most of the time throughout it, and that is tough. And I think I've you know got to the point now where um, I really want to share all of it with someone. I I don't really want to go on holiday on my own because I've done it so much and. Again, I hope that doesn't sound um, arrogant over the top. I'm very grateful for, for what I've had and what I've done, and I enjoy all the experiences. But it would just be nice to share it with someone else, being ready for that, you know yeah. what I mean?
0: That's so interesting, because I've got a few friends who who are single, and it's all sort of in their 40s as well. And um, it's difficult watching your peers sort of get married and have kids and move off in different directions. Yeah. And obviously, especially during the pandemic, I think it really sort of highlighted the fact that if you were single, it was it was really quite tough, yeah. wasn't it? And yeah. um so it's quite interesting you talk like that. I think also like I've got friends in Cardiff
1: and the way that people do things in Cardiff. My best friend at home has a 24-year-old daughter. and um, My friends in London are sort of just married with sort of kids, you know, young kids now. And in Manchester, again, sort of the more grown-up thing. It's interesting, isn't it? Geogra- ge- geography sort of dictates sometimes what happens to you. But I never really wanted to settle. I, you know, I, I hope I meet someone that becomes that soulmate, the best friend um, that everyone talks about and for whatever reason it's um, and I'm not saying it's anyone's fault it's just not happened so fingers crossed one day but you do get some funny looks at Christmas when you're like the dodgy uncle that buys nice presents for people and they're like you know but I don't think my nephew's mind
0: <laughs> This podcast is brought to you as part of the Hats On For Mind campaign which Gethin is an ambassador He designed his own hat and flask which you can purchase online and in-store and Go Outdoors Blacks Millets, Nailers and Fishing Republic. Not only that, but 100% of profits from the campaign will go to mind. You touched upon how fame is, is a tricky beast to navigate. Um, and also what is tricky and quite precarious at times is, is television. Um, and obviously, as you say, you had this um, huge level of fame with Strictly and you've, had, you've, you've kept going with your career and you've had a Brilliant career, and obviously now we were morning live, and again this is a you've got fab, fabulous ratings with that. But is it quite stressful going from? Is it does it feel like you're going going from job to job in some respects, and you don't know where the next job's going to come from? Is that the life of a TV presenter?
1: If you ask my dad that, he just can't cope with it. He doesn't get it. It's quite stressful. You know? Yeah, He's like it's become... stressful
0: just thinking about it actually.
1: Yeah, that's what he would say. He doesn't get it. He's like, I, I don't understand how you live like that, and I suppose. At the start, it was exciting. All of a sudden, then you're working, and then you don't really think about it. And I think because I was aware of it, and I came into it a bit later, I'd started investing on, a, on in a few things, a couple of businesses and stuff like that. I don't know. I, get, I, I feel really lucky that um, I do this now because I want to. You know, I was going to quit telly a few years ago. went back and did a master's, thought my career was going a different way.
0: Why were you going to quit?
1: Uh, I... I was doing It Takes Two uh, for a couple of years, three years. And then um, one year uh, when Zoe was sort of doing part-time because of a Radio 2 job, Ryland came in to do it. Nothing to do with Ryland whatsoever, but I was like, oh, God, you know, I was hoping if I hung around I might get that job. I didn't, hence how precarious TV is. So I was like, actually, this is mad. I can't make a plan. I can't, you know, decide what I do in the future with TV. It's, it's down to... It's, it's completely out of my control. So I uh, I went on holiday and sat there for a week going, what do I really want to do? What do I love doing? And decided to educate myself in that field to give me a chance to be able to do it. I really want to build a, a school for autistic kids in Cardiff. And I'm absolutely adamant I'll do it uh, with my friend. And I sort of wanted to work in sports too. But I'm also really fascinated by... Workplaces, leadership, culture, empowerment, equality. It's really important to me. So I did a course, a master's in in pretty much that. So I was done, I was gonna quit tally. And then that thing, it's a bit like sports, isn't it? Someone gets gets injured and you get an opportunity whenever Zoe was ill one one week and I, I went on air on it takes two as, as a fill in and loved it. I'd already, you know, always do my prep and diligence, but just sort of more relaxed, really. Then morning live came along for eight for an eight week pilot. I'm like, God, am I going to do this with a master's now?
0: When you're on holiday, it's a debate. I went to Bali to find myself. Was it Bali? We've all Excellent. done it. I've been there five times, never found myself. Honestly, you're such a cliche. No, I know. <laughs> it wasn't five times, it's been once, yeah. <laughs> when, when you're on holiday and you're thinking about quitting TV, is part, are you a piece of that decision? Or are you deep down sort of quite angry? Because you've invested a lot of time in your career so far. Yeah,
1: yeah. You? Yeah, but I'm, um, no... I felt so lucky doing a show called and Pimp on S4C. And then Blue Peter came along, and uh, in fairness, to my, my dad says something to me. Um, he doesn't usually come out with that many profound comments when it comes to my career, but he said something that week I was waiting for the Blue Peter uh, job, and he said, um, whatever happens, I feel like you've lived two lifetimes already. It's like, that's such a good point. Uh, and the travel with S4C, and I got a pilot's license doing that job. Um, I met some amazing people. I lived in North Wales. I did things I never did as a city boy. Probably my love, true out, love for the outdoors started there, you know, climbing and the landscapes in Wales and flying. and Oh, it was just amazing. Uh, so I was really at ease with it, and I was more grateful for the times I had rather than being angry about what hadn't happened. You, you can't do that. If you become bitter in our world, in media world, where does that leave you? And I've seen it with good friends who are really angry about stuff. And I get it, but I'm like, come on, look how good it's been. Imagine, imagine, imagine a real job, do you know what I mean? That's what my dad says. Imagine if you had a real job. I'm like, it's annoying when he says it, but he's kind
0: of right. <laughs> Morning Live came at a perfect time for you, although it wasn't perfect in that you had to give up your degree. Or well, you finished your degree, didn't you? I did, yeah. I finished yeah. my degree, yeah. And I was very proud I got a distinction for my degree oh, too. Oh, excellent. But
1: because I loved it, I was so into it fascinated by it yeah so i did finish it it was tough then doing the sort of the two morning live in the morning whatever that is but In by six finish at 12 12 30 and had to go home make a little coffee and probably be up until 10 p.m for for six months i probably pretty much did that to finish off what i started and then um yeah sort of integrate a lot of what we learned what i learned on the masters into work and that's been really lovely you know the culture at morning live is is really healthy. It's talked about within the industry and outside. Um
0: I think this is so interesting because yeah. we, we we spoke before coming coming on air and uh, um, about cultures and TV studios and newsrooms. For me, working at the Mirror, it's right. changed so much over over the last few years because um, there's this, is, this is understanding or belief that you know. It, TV shows, everyone's trying to stab each other in the back and trying to move up the ladder. But you say you've fostered this really wonderful culture. Of I think so.
1: Life. Yeah. And um, I, uh, it's genuine invite to come and see it. You know, I say that to anyone who's, in, who's interested. It takes way more than one person to implement culture. We have an amazing boss called Emma Morris, uh, who has exactly the same mentality when it comes to that, James Morgan, director, myself. Martin there's a lot of people that are responsible for that culture, you know, as a, in a leadership role. So I suppose a presenter is a leadership role. Anyone comes into the studio, immediately made to feel welcome, looking out for them, are they okay? Build the trust. James then looking after his gallery and Emma overall, setting the agenda that you follow. Like, I feel like I'm her lieutenant, her culture lieutenant, if you like. Um, and it works. And I think if you get that right, the red light looks after itself. And ratings are one thing, but hearing people going, I had a good experience today, or they message to say thanks for today, or, you know, you have my back there. That means more to me than, than any of it. And all our morning meetings, whether you're a researcher, an AP, executive producer, it's all equal, everyone has a say, massive team, speak to each other the same way. And it's a joy to go to work.
0: I then asked Geffen, is he knew the signs of someone struggling at work? And he spoke of the deep impact and also confusion after a colleague took their own life.
1: That had a profound effect on me because I was like, what? He looked like George Clooney. He was the nicest guy in the world. He was a cool guy. He had a cool job. He had a beautiful son. Don't get it. What's the matter? And I think that's when it changed for me where I was given some great advice by uh, my my current boss boss, if you like. And he said, you know, always be aware that you might offend the most be aware that you, um, about the most offended person in the room, you know? So when you're speaking as a presenter, which I see as a leadership role, just be careful. And it's not about, um, having to do it. I want to be like that. You know, I'd hate for someone to feel shit because of something I said. Um, and I like that awareness. I find that responsibility really, really, um, important. Um, so yeah, I think, I think absolutely I'm aware of it, but you never really know what's going on with right. people. And I think that's why I try to teach myself to say, okay, hang on, if someone's been a bit of a dick today, maybe there's a reason for that. Don't jump on the bandwagon, say so, no, he's a dick because of that moment. But interestingly, in my role as a presenter, I can't have a bad day. Because if you're down or you're a bit short with someone for whatever reason, that's how people remember you. And that's what they'll say about you to other people, right? It's weird. Society's a bit weird like that, isn't it?
0: I remember talking to um, Sean Fletcher for this series and he was really struggling at home with his, with his son who had OCD. Yet he was still going on TV every day, presenting himself and, and trying to put on a brave face effectively, but inside he was really hurting. Have there been occasions where, as you say, you need to be on form, you need to be on show, but inside things weren't
1: going quite so Yeah, 100%, yeah. Um, just on the Sean thing, actually, a bit of a tangent before I answer that question. Um, we obviously all work as ambassadors for Go Outdoors and we've, we've been working on the, uh, um, the Mind campaign, uh, Hats On For Mind campaign. And weirdly, the campaign itself, when we did the photo shoot, meant that we all started talking and we did open up and Sean told me about that. Oh, really? And I've told Sean about stuff going on in my life and I don't know Sean that well. Uh, Helen's the same we're really Helen and I really you know close we're good friends we we talk about everything I just think that's pretty cool you know that the campaign that we're promoting is a campaign that we actually use for ourselves
0: Yeah, it empowers you to talk about
1: 100% yeah. yeah and it's fine because the campaign says so if that makes sense yeah um, the Yeah, like after Strictly and um, I was engaged and breaking up after that. Or even during that period, it was just awful. And I remember doing Five Live and sort of going into the toilet at 5.30 in the morning, sort of going, right, come on, just focus for the next three hours. And then you can go back to being sad again. You know, I definitely had, you know, a bad bout of depression uh, during that time. I was doing some amazing things. I remember being in Mount Cook in New Zealand like at the top of this mountain and just feeling really sad and low. And people are like, what's the matter with you? You're doing this. I'm like, I know. I don't know why. I was in a rut and I couldn't work it out. And I saw someone I had therapy for a couple of years and I still do my homework on that. I really? still do it. Um, I think it's easy to walk away from it and say I'm fine. I don't know. I just want to be the best version of myself, really. Um, I was really hard on myself as well and I think I've got better at you know, understanding that I'm a bit of a, I'm not perfect, I've got lots of imperfections, I embellish the truth, I'm hardly ever serious, um, and that's okay, you know. <laughs> but I've got some principles and being courteous and commitment and honesty are really important to me as well. So,
0: During that time of the, of the breakup, did you talk, you had therapy about it, as you yeah. say, but did you feel you could talk to your friends about it?
1: Yeah, I did, but it was ranting. It was, was it? Yeah, you know, it's, it's it was, and... And I was waiting for a friend to tell me what to do, and they can't do that. I put so much pressure on them. And uh, actually you need to figure it out yourself. And I think that's what makes me the most sad. During the course, we did loads of active listening. I find it interesting that uh, public speaking is a multi-billion dollar business around the world, and there's no courses for listening. And it's the most important skill as a presenter or as a person really. So I challenge myself when my friends come to me with a problem of never advising, just asking good questions. And I get off the phone, I'm sad because I, I want to take the sadness away from them or the hurt away from them, but I know I can't do that and they have to get there themselves. But hopefully, with the right questions and, you know, given time, that helps them make the right decision for them.
0: Was it even harder because the breakup played out in the public domain?
1: Yeah, that's, that's horrible because a, a lot of what I read about myself wasn't
0: right. Did that exacerbate the depression effectively?
1: Uh, not really. I just, with that, I don't know why, but there was something inside of me that said the only things that matter really now are dignity and integrity, which no one gives you credit for. It's not measured and it doesn't make you any money. It's just something that, it, it, it's the hardest thing to do in the time and probably what I'm most proud of now. Um you know, I don't really talk about it. It's not. I've never have talked about it. I've been asked to write a book a few times, and it's. I just don't know. I have no thought. I don't know what to do about it. You know, people are really interested in all that stuff, aren't they? They are.
0: Yeah. They are.
1: But um, no, I don't think. I think the press was just. I was used to that by then. But I was in the end. I was like, oh, the, the people closest to me know what's going on, and I just have to stick with that. Really.
0: You, you, th- you found that therapy helpful yeah, and, you, and you took things from that therapy which have helped you through your career and your and your life. Yeah, yeah,
1: it, 100%. It was, um, you know, my mum and dad are probably quite old school. I don't even think my parents know I had therapy. I might have mentioned it to them, but, yeah, that older generation just think, what do you mean mental health? It's, you know. But then I have a nephew with autism, so they now have to learn that, you know, Alby's watching the washing machine because that's his world. Get in his world or get out. You know, you don't have a choice. But this sort of um, anxiety or depression or that kind of mental health um, is uh, something the older generation struggle with, don't they? Like, mm. come on, crack on mentality. And I was probably like that for a long time, but it broke me. So
0: almost broke me. You explore a lot of mental health stories on on on, on Morning Live. Um, and quite recently, actually, um, your co-star Kim came on, um, and she was really open and honest about. Um, her dad has been unwell, and she's taken time off work because because of her anxiety. And I think it was a really moving and really powerful, and almost vital, um, moment when she came on the show with you, and she talked about that. And I think that's such a that's quite rare, I think, in, in today's climate for TV presenters to open up like that to. To their co star and, the, and to the nation, effectively. But I think it was really important to do so because it normalised people talking about anxiety. Did you, find, did you find that?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing to say about that is she wanted to do that. There's never any pressure from us on Morning Live to do that stuff. We've had John Irwin on, a good friend of mine, Craig. We've just done a, a lung cancer story with Craig. He's terminal. You know, he wants to raise awareness and raise money. And that's on them. I think that's really important to stress. We're not a show that goes after these stories, but Kim is part of our family. Family is everything to Kim. Um, when I first started working with her, I'd noticed that she needs that love and trust. And when you get that from her, it's amazing. You know, she's, she can be an absolute nightmare sometimes. <laughs> but um, she does the role brilliantly and she's a joy to work with on air. Um, she's got a crazy life a busy life and I genuinely think she feels like morning live is her family and that's why she feels comfortable to come on and and actually recently with her dad I think she's found real strength in that you know by coming on and talking about Dave and and Dave loves watching her on morning live as well it's helped her it's helped other people in similar situations obviously a huge part of why we do it um and she is strong like that, you know. It's it's so interesting. She can be frightened of live TV and have a panic attack one minute, and I'm like, "Do you really want to do this?" And she's like, "Yeah, you know." And next minute, she can come on and talk about her dad like that. I don't think I could do that, but she finds she finds great strength in that. So we're very happy to support it.
0: I wanted to ask you about sport, um, changing the subject completely because obviously during Blue Peter, you did lots of sporting challenges. We talked about your your rugby. Um, and you do triathlons now. And you do also something which I've, I've written down here called high, high Rocks. I've got no idea what that is. I think I Googled it. and I still don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, no, it's,
1: yeah. They're, if you <laughs> ask people at work, they're like, if he mentions High Rocks again, yeah, it's like so a CrossFit right. competition I do with my friend Sam, but it's not CrossFit. It's like a, a load of running and, you know, burpees and farmer's carries and skiers and stuff like that. It's pretty intense we were we um we competed in london and we came 15th uh, out of 151 in our age group and we've been banging on about it ever since (laughs) fifteenth. but i love it i love working with i love he's a good mate i love training with him i love going to those dark places and it suits it suits me you know
0: yeah and you still play football i hear
1: Oh God, every time I play football these days, it's like five weeks with a physio. I need to give I'm 45. What am I doing playing
0: five weeks? Impress- I'm very impressed that you still continue. It's, a, it's good camaraderie, it's isn't it? It's the team, and that's yeah.
1: exactly it. I don't ever want to leave that team sporting feeling. It's probably the best night's sleep I get all week, out in the cold. Do you know what I mean? We're all rubbish. <laughs> I always thinking of that song when I'm playing. My mind is telling me yes but my body, my body's telling me no. You know, thinking I can get to that ball and I can't physically, but in my head I still think I can.
0: <laughs> I think, mean, keep, on, keep on going with it. I'm so, I'm so impressed. You know, I'll I'm I'm be 65 and you be like, I <laughs> can't
1: move my knees. I mean, I'm playing on Tuesday, yeah.
0: What happens when you don't play? What happens when
1: you, exactly. you, when you stay nightmare. in
0: and watch TV? Do you know what I mean? What, do you... Yeah,
1: no, I, that, that's what I worry about. I don't know, I think I'm a different person if I'm not doing some kind of physical activity. It's really important to me. It's really important to me. How long can I do it for? I don't know, but I'll always be on the bike or playing golf or doing something active. I can't imagine I'll ever be idle physically.
0: One of the questions I ask people on this, on this podcast, it's been quite interesting, some of the answers, um, is what would you say to somebody who was struggling with their mental health? It might be someone perhaps at work you've noticed who's a bit quieter than usual, um, who hasn't necessarily got an outlet he can turn to. Um, what would you say to that person? I don't think there's so much saying it to that person.
1: Um, you can't fix someone. Um, you can only be a good friend. Um, and what I mean by that is, however uncomfortable you are, like Craig's a good example. I was telling you about my friend who's got this terminal lung cancer diagnosis. You pick up the phone. Like, what are you going to say to him? I don't know. But my rule is pick up the phone. Um, it's really simple. And so if I do see someone who's slightly off, slightly different, if I don't know them brilliantly, I'll make sure I find someone who does and say, don't care if this sounds a bit odd or weird, but blah, blah, looking a bit different. Everything cool? Can you check in? Um, and after that, if it's someone close to me, I'll just keep calling and be patient. You know what I mean? It's nothing you can do. I don't, I don't know if you agree. I don't know from your experience of doing these interviews where anyone said... Right, I can fix the person that's struggling. You've just got to be the best friend you can
0: i think I think most of the answers actually have centered around that. Um, yeah, and also a lot of people they rely they they talk to their partners, they talk to their families, you know sometimes yeah. they have to sort of see the warning signs themselves
1: yeah i, I don't know I could talk to my family if I had a problem. I've got a couple of mates who you know you go tos, and they're the ones who listen, you know um yeah. And it's weird. I've met a lot of people who've become friends through my career, through different stages. Um, and there's a lot. There's a lot of friends, you know. And I don't think you can have a hundred best friends, but um, I have really good connections with people. I think my mate Ollie's probably the wisest guy I know. I hate that he's the wisest guy. Um, <laughs> I used to say, you know, you've got friends for different reasons, and and I think he's probably right, you know.
0: You really do, don't you? Does he know when you're down? Does he know what the warning signs are effectively? He
1: would have done. I you know, um, lives in London now. He's, you know, got his own family and I see less of him, which I hate. Um, I always wonder why we do that. You know, we just say, oh, we see less of each other and I immediately go, why don't I see more of him? I don't know, logistics life, it's tough, isn't it? It's like the same reason I always think, why do I live in Manchester? It rains all the time. When actually we could find a way of living somewhere else but we don't do we because that's that's where we're from this is what we do we're such a weird race aren't we like what are we doing I'm not happy here but I'm going to crack on anyway Um, yeah so um, but yeah there are other you know other friends I get are you right? you know because they've seen something in the day or whatever and like yeah 100% and then you're honest with your response too
0: how do you deal with social media something again it's a question I ask a lot of the people I've spoken to on this podcast so far. Um, a lot of people have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with it. Um, how about you? Yeah, I, I
1: I honestly think the world would be a better place without it. You know, I've got a nephew who's dying to go on Instagram, and he's 12 and 13, and I try and have a really good conversation with him. And I'm like, mate, every day I see stories that scare the living daylights out of me. I love you so much. I just don't want you in that world right now. I'm not being a horrible uncle or anything else, your parents have got to make decision, but you know, it's horrible. It's uh, I think it's ridiculous. The biggest thing I can say is I'm in control of it, if that makes sense. So I use it, sure, but
0: it's quite integral to your work in many respects, is isn't it? it? I don't know. I is don't it? Know. is, is it I don't
1: I maybe like a lot of people say that. I don't know if I came off social media tomorrow, would it make a difference to what I do on morning live? I'm not sure. I suppose in many
0: respects you need to sort of promote yourself don't you you know you're promoting the show right everything
1: than that yeah the show maybe but uh...
0: when you're on when, when you' having that holiday thinking about you might walk away from TV yeah I mean maybe a part of you might be thinking God I could walk away from social media as well Yeah, because yeah 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 I wouldn't miss it if I didn't use it
1: tomorrow I wouldn't I wouldn't miss it again I think from the charity side of things it's um
0: that's helpful then it's isn't really it? helpful yeah. yeah
1: it's getting that message out there and fundraising It's huge. And that's what I mean by being in control of it. Like, I like a little funny message now and then. I actually enjoy some accounts I follow because they're interesting. You learn loads and it's immediate, right? So it's handy for work.
0: Is it quite addictive, though, when you get all these yeah, notifications? It is, yeah. yeah, it's you weird. Know. How many likes have I got? Do you wake up in the morning sometimes? You've got loads of loads of comments and likes and things. And you, do and you think, what the hell has happened overnight? What have I done? What's- Tom,
1: you don't want to see the stuff I get overnight from...
0: <laughs> <Really>?
1: <laughs> some of it is... It's a lot. You know, for men and women, it's a lot. Um, But again, like we sort of did a film on, you know, trolling. And actually when you get to the bottom of why people are being nasty to each other on social media, they're just bored. They don't actually even mean it. But the effect it can have on someone's mental health is huge. I've seen people get a thousand lovely comments, one dodgy one, and they go after that person. I've got a really good friend I won't mention who I'm constantly... Arguing with about it, I'm like stop doing that. Because when you go on there and you're you're angry and you're, you're frustrated, I, I completely agree with everything this person is saying. But my point is, show me how it's helping the situation. That's where we. That's where it gets out of control. You know, everyone thinks they know best. It starts a ridiculous argument, and where does it leave us? It's horrible. I was just thinking of Wayne Barnes, actually. You know, the referee from the World Cup final referee has just quit and he came out this week saying some of it was just too too far. And he's right. He, he did a job really well, whether you agree or disagree. He did the job really well and now it's become so personal and he's one of millions of people who are going through the same thing.
0: It's bad enough being a referee any, anyway,
1: isn't exactly. it? Exactly. I mean, look at that. Yeah, and rugby's really good. You know, like there's a real respect for refs. and uh, Yeah, so I think social media in in that sense is dangerous. I think you've got to be in control
0: of it. I then asked Gettin about whether he'd ever been upset or even scared by social media. And he revealed how only recently he was wrongly accused online of being the then-anonymous BBC presenter suspended for alleged inappropriate behaviour.
1: I was going to say no up until recently, and I mean this is quite full-on to mention, but it, it, it happened, but the, the weekend of Dr Zan's wedding, I was in Verona for his wedding and I was off on the Monday and that Sunday night, I saw four separate messages. And that was a lot, because that's there. It's out there. Someone said it, and someone else might believe it. And it, that, that is what? I mean, and then you're sort of on the phone, and my agent was calling saying, you know, maybe you should just send a message to say you're at Zan's wedding, and you're not on air tomorrow. I'm like, I don't send messages when I'm abroad, because I don't want anyone to rob my house. <laughs> and now I'm like, I've got to tell people I'm away. Because these people are saying these things to me online. And I'm like, this is madness. You must know? have just felt completely sick when you yes, saw those oh, messages. of course it is. I can't I like? even begin to imagine what no, that's like. No. It's from nowhere, you know. So that, that's, you can't, you know, I can't sit here and say to, me, say to you that doesn't affect someone. Of course it does. But um, I try and see it for what it is, which is, you know, you go on their profile, you know, seven followers, and they just call in everyone, everything, and you think, well, what do I do? Do I go after them? Do I sue them? Or do I just move on? But that was a tough one to read.
0: What did you do in the end of that? Just sort of wrote it out?
1: Yeah, I just posted something that night saying, had a brilliant weekend, I'm off tomorrow, rare treat, see you on Tuesday. And never, I never go after, I never, ever respond to anyone on there that's been negative in touch with it. I don't get bad stuff, really. Probably quite vanilla in that sense, you know, really boring, but that's not a bad place to be. Um, but I'm not controversial on it at all. I use it for updates and a bit of fun and, and to make people feel good, you know, compliment people, say, well done, it's nice. What's next for you? I was thinking about an afternoon sleep. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, morning Live, I, I, my contract ends um, with Morning Live um, soonish. Um, so waiting to see if they want to employ me again.
0: So we go, we go back again to the precarious nature of the TV. <laughs> no, yeah. industry, don't we? Yeah,
1: no, things go well, but you never know. Um, you know, the, the the signs are positive, but you never know until you see a contract. <laughs> um, I love the job. I'm 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 so blessed to have it. Very lucky. The timing and everything else that came with it, and the group of people we work with. Um, what's next? That. Meeting someone, getting a dog, like to adopt a child. <laughs> Is this the kind of thing you're asking for? Um, I've always wanted to adopt. Um, have, I always wanted to have kids, but adopt too.
0: Is it something you've explored ever?
1: I did actually. Yeah. Oh I really? Did.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. As a single man too. It was, uh, when was that? Cause a friend of mine, um, a gay friend of mine in uh, LA, was doing it with this. Um, when I was out there, and I was like, wow. So I learned a lot watching him go through it but obviously you've got to be ready and it's a huge commitment but um i think cuz i do a lot of work um with charities and children's charities and you see these heartbreaking stories i just think i just love you know to be able to save uh, a child in that in that sense so uh, yeah we'll see we'll see about that but yeah How,
0: did you get quite I've a gone from afternoon
1: adapt- Kip to adopting. that's quite a I was
0: going to say you can't I just leave you can't just leave it there or Thursday. <laughs> Did you get quite far down the track of no, 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 yeah. not
1: at all. No, I just learned loads and sat there and just took it in with an open mind, really. Um, I can't say I went much further than that, but um, I think that's why I pour my heart and soul into children mm-hmm. charities. I have my own autism charity called Nye with my best friend, Sean. Nye is a welfare for nephew. We both have nephews who have autism, so we do quite a bit in that space. Hence where the triathlon started to raise money. Um, so that's that's important right now. And yeah, hopefully in the future, who knows?
0: You seem really happy in a really good place.
1: Lucky. I think gratitude is the word I, I, I think of a lot. Like, I'm really, really lucky. and I have so much gratitude. And I'm totally aware it could end tomorrow. Uh, and that's cool. You know, I'll go and do something else. That'd be fine. But, um, I, you know, yeah.
0: On that note, Gethins, it's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Pleasure speaking. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.